The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. So they have smoothies and pancakes and chicken biscuits and cheese grits. and. This is Donna Martin. She's a school nutrition director in Burke County, Georgia. We have 63% of our children on food stamps, which means all our kids eat at no cost. And we serve breakfast, lunch, after-school snacks, supper, summer feeding. Our children are very lucky to be well-fed. The kids in Donna's county have gotten free meals at school for a long time now. That's thanks to this government program called the Community Eligibility Provision. And it lets districts with high concentrations of poverty offer free meals to every kid. During the pandemic, as more and more kids became food insecure, Congress did something new. It expanded free lunch to every student as part of the CARES Act. School administrators were hoping they could continue to offer free meals to every kid at least for another year. But now, universal free school lunch is set to abruptly end, which Donna says is a shame. My philosophy is I need to provide these teachers with kids ready to learn. And in order for them to be ready to learn, they have to have breakfast, they have to have lunch, they have to have supper or an after-school snack if they're there for tutoring. And kids cannot learn on an empty stomach. We need to look at this program just like we look at every other part of education. Busing, teaching, books, computers, all of those things. It's all the same thing. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 21st. Today, what having universal free school lunch has meant for students, and what will happen now as this program expires. So something kind of remarkable happened during the pandemic, and that is that in order to social distance, and because lawmakers knew that childhood hunger would likely increase during the pandemic, they just made all school meals free for all children, regardless of eligibility, regardless of their family income. Mariah Balingit covers education for The Post. And that is coming to an end at the end of the summer. And so now school administrators are scrambling to make sure that the families who do qualify fill out the necessary paperwork, provide all the documentation. And it's a very difficult thing to make sure to reach all the families. And there's also lots of families who barely don't qualify. Can you give us a sense of how widespread child hunger was nationwide during the pandemic? Because this program was started to address that, right? So how big of a problem was it? So childhood hunger has been a persistent problem in the United States, despite us being one of the wealthiest countries in the world. During the pandemic, one of the estimates in 2020 was that about one in six households with children were food insecure. And so... This universal lunch program started. How did expanding who was eligible to receive free meals go? 
If you talk to school nutrition directors, it seemed to have gone really, really well. Um, one thing that I heard a lot of is that they had to deal with the quite a bit less paperwork. Hmm. They didn't have to be harassing or haranguing teachers to harass or harangue parents to get paperwork filled out. They were really able to just focus on feeding kids. And that's, you know, what they went into the business to do. So that was something that they really liked. And they didn't have to worry, too, about stigma. There are kids who qualify for free meals who don't eat them because it's considered the meal for the quote-unquote poor kids. So feeding every child and not giving, you know, kids who qualify for free meals a special pin or a special card made it less stigmatized to, to eat these meals because they were the meals for every child. The reason we like this program is that it takes all the shame out of all the kids that eat free lunch. There's a lot of shaming that goes on in districts of kids that are, you try not to identify them, but everybody knows who eats free lunch. So in my community, everybody eats lunch and there's no shame. That's interesting because prior to the pandemic, free and reduced lunches were available to children who come from families that go below certain income levels, right? But even with that, not every child who qualified was getting those meals or would even eat them if they were approved to get them, right? Right. There were lots of issues around access. So, for example, there were some families who would have qualified, but they were afraid to fill out the paperwork. They were afraid to provide the documentation, perhaps because they were undocumented and they didn't want to be providing that kind of information to the government. And then, the, again, there are also lots of families where their financial situation might be unstable, so they might not qualify one year and then lose a job and certainly be under that threshold the following month. So how did expanding eligibility play out in addressing hunger rates during the pandemic? Did, was it effective in reducing the childhood hunger rate it was intended to address? You know, it's difficult to say because I haven't seen the statistics, but what we do know is that school nutrition directors said that kids were absolutely eating these meals. And one of the things that the CARES Act did was that it allowed them to serve meals off-site, to allow kids to take food home, to allow them to take more than one meal home. And certainly lots and lots of families were taking advantage of that and needed that. I also spoke to one school nutrition director in Cincinnati who said that families had come to rely on these kinds of meals and mm. were directing any of their savings towards other necessities like gas bills or phone bills or the electricity bill. And that, you know, having to start paying for food again, especially when food prices are rising, is going to be really tough for them. Um, and it may put them further and further behind. Yeah. So why is this program ending? Well, Part of the reason is because Republicans on the Hill really believe that this was a pandemic-era allowance, and they believe it's time for it to come to an end. They point out things like the fact that part of the reason, for example, that they went to universal lunches is so that cafeteria workers wouldn't have to be in close contact with kids while they put in their PIN numbers or swiped their mm. cards. But now kids are going to school, and there is not such a fear of putting cafeteria workers within six feet of kids. So they say, why do we need this when a lot of the conditions that made these programs necessary are gone?
What did Donna Martin say about having universal free meals and and what that does for kids and what she's seen firsthand? So Donna has had the benefit of the community eligibility provision for quite a while. And so she's had universal free meals for a long time. And what she says is that it gives her an opportunity to, you know, not have to worry about whether a kid who might need the food isn't getting it. She's able to feed all kids. It's been a really wonderful opportunity for us to ensure that our kids get the healthy meals that they need. The other thing is that, you know, when the schools shut down, she wouldn't have been able to feed all of the kids in her county were it not for these provisions that said things like, kids can eat meals off-site, kids can take food home, because she didn't have enough buses to bring those meals directly to families and have them eat on the bus. During the summer, previously the way it worked, because the kids have to eat meal, quote-unquote, on-site, is that they would drive these buses to various parts of the county they would give the kids the meals and they would have to sit on the bus and eat the meals. They they got 15 minutes to do that because of all of this regulation around where the kids could eat and how much food they could get. When those regulations got waived, she was able to feed a lot more kids in the county. And one of the things she told me is that if they hadn't been waived, she wouldn't have been able to feed all the kids in her county. And she was going to have to make a decision about who needed the food the most. She told me that was an impossible choice. She didn't want to have Hmm. to do that. So waiving these rules, it seems like a minor technical thing, but it really ends up impacting hundreds of thousands of kids. The other thing is, is that Donna and lots of educators notice, as you might expect, that their children behave differently when they're not hungry. A lot of the kids didn't want to stay after school for tutoring. They were hungry and they didn't want to stay after school. But by offering supper, it encouraged them to stay after school and it actually raised our graduation rate and it made our our athletic teams perform better because they were fueled and ready to practice and, and do in the games. I've talked to teachers who say that sometimes their kids end up going to the nurse's office for stomach aches that are, in the end, they just need breakfast. They're crankier. They're less well-behaved when they're hungry. It's just like any other human being. You know, when I step back and I think there have been provisions that allowed people who made under certain incomes to have their children, you know, qualify for free and reduced lunches. And I'm just wondering what critics have to say about expanding eligibility universally? Like, why wouldn't you give all children free lunch? Is part of it an argument of, well, you know, well-off children or children who come from richer households don't need free lunch, so why would we pay for that? That is certainly the argument, and that is actually something I've heard from parents, that their kids are not eating the meals. Of course, nobody is mandating that kids eat these meals. You know, kids were still permitted to bring their own lunches. But um, certainly that's part of the argument, that maybe some kids don't really need this, that we're providing an unnecessary benefit for maybe upper middle class and and upper income households. People say, well, why don't you know, why don't the parents that can afford to pay for lunch pay for lunch? Well, parents that can afford to pay for stuff don't pay for computers or books or busing or teaching. It's the same thing with lunch. It, it should be all part of the school day. I think the the proponents of universal meals say that if you feed everybody, you don't have anybody who falls through the cracks, for example, hmm. because if a parent loses a job mid-year, and maybe the kid doesn't qualify one month, but qualifies the next. And and they talk about the fact that, you know, 
making sure that all children are fed is more important, perhaps, than feeding kids who might not exactly need the meals. These last couple years have been really hard. And right now with inflation and the cost of food and the cost of gas, families are struggling. And we need at least one more year to get them on their feet and get them through this pandemic. And it's going to hurt the kids. And, And anybody that can think that this is a waste of money, I, I struggle with that philosophy. One of the other things is that school lunches are subject to pretty strict nutritional standards from the federal government. That happened in 2010 under the Obama administration when they reauthorized the child nutrition programs. They put in a lot of nutritional standards, things like the meals have to often contain whole wheat, they, the meals have to contain milk, There are sodium and fat restrictions. So oftentimes, and studies have shown, that the meals that kids are eating at school are healthier than what they would have brought from home. They are much healthier than what the kids bring from home, unless your mom is a registered dietitian and she makes you this fabulous bento box. Typically, the meals brought from home are not near as healthy as the school lunches are. After the break, we'll talk about the future of universal free school lunch. We'll be right back. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday. So, Mariah, this program is expiring really soon. Can you talk us through what any members of Congress are doing to either try to keep it alive or or do something to change the landscape of providing meals to children in schools? So what I've heard is that there's just not the political will. Certainly there are members of Congress um, in favor of universal free meals, but there's simply not the political will. So it hasn't even been proposed at this point. Uh, That's kind of wild that it hasn't been even proposed to continue it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think from what I understand, because people know that it's a non-starter for certain members of Congress or for enough of Congress, they're simply just not proposing um, making it universal anytime soon. It is really interesting that the pandemic became sort of this policy laboratory to try out things that a lot of progressives have wanted for a long time, like the child tax credit and universal free lunches. Um, And I think there was some hope, some optimism that these programs would continue. But of course, as we saw with the child tax credit, and now we're seeing with the free lunches, they are being allowed to expire because there's not the political will to continue them. Is anyone in Congress doing something else to change who qualifies for meals or to expand eligibility? One of the things that happened this week was that two members of of the House actually proposed a reauthorization of the USDA's child nutrition programs. So 
this means that they have an opportunity to really make some serious changes to the programs, and they can do that permanently rather than doing it on this year-to-year basis like they've mm-hmm. been doing it. So it, it provides some stability to the program. They're hoping to add funding. And most importantly, they're hoping to bring more kids into the fold, make more kids eligible, expand that criteria. Because a lot of child anti-hunger advocates say that these criteria are are too high, basically. Mm. It's, it's too tough for kids to qualify for these things. There's lots of kids who need these meals who aren't getting them because they don't fall within these narrow guidelines. So they want to make them wider. They want to make it possible for more kids to receive these meals. But in the meantime, it seems like administrators and families are staring down the fact that the universal program is going away very soon. Can you tell us about what they're saying now and and why they're so nervous about about this going away? So for some families, for example, if you have a very, very young child, you've never had to fill out one of these forms. And now they're in the position of trying to reach families over the next several weeks in the middle of the summer to make sure that they fill out these forms and explain the forms to them and make sure that they collect the necessary documentation. Teachers that struggle every day to teach these kids and to put the extra burden on them to have to collect lunch money and worry about kids that don't bring their lunches or haven't eaten breakfast and have to turn in meal applications. You know, it's a burden on them that they do not need. And that can be a real barrier, a real challenge for families, um, particularly those who are living on, you know, the financial precipice. They're already stressed out. Maybe they're working a lot. And it's something that's just difficult for them to get done. And it creates a lot of extra work, too, for for teachers and administrators and school nutrition directors to go out and try and get families to fill these forms out. On top of all of this, school nutrition directors are dealing with lots of other crises. Uh, Rising food costs, for example, the war in Ukraine has made grain much more expensive. And so their bread costs are going up. A case of chicken strips last year was $134.78. This year, it's $171.87. That is a $40 case increase. There's also vendors who don't want to sell to schools anymore. Schools require very specific products because of nutritional standards. And a lot of vendors have decided it's no longer worth it. So some schools are having trouble finding people who will sell them food. And on top of that, we also see increasing labor costs. So really, school nutrition programs are being hit on all sides by a lot of things that are tied to the pandemic, but some things that are even not related to the pandemic. I've just been thinking about how the pandemic has really forced us as a society to do things differently than we had ever done before, than we had ever considered. And offering free universal lunch to all children is one of those things. It was the first time the nation did this. And and now we're all in this collective moment of asking, do we return to normal? And so is that what this is in a way of, of getting rid of this program or this program coming to an end? Is this returning to the status quo or have families in the education system just become so used to this that going back to that normal will be really disruptive? I think it's the latter. I mean, going back to the the normal or the pre-pandemic normal, um, which was a system that left a lot of kids behind, 
is going to be really tough for families because, again, it's been a long time since some of these families had have had to fill out forms. I think a lot of families are going to find out that they actually don't qualify um, and that they're going to have to start providing meals for their kids. And again, you know, a lot of these families have come to rely on these meals and have used the savings of feeding their kids lunch to pay for other necessities like gas bills. Maybe they're using it for savings, for example, and it gave them a little bit of a financial pad. But all of that is going away, unfortunately, for them. Thanks, Mariah. Thank you so much for having me. Mariah Balingit covers education for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced and mixed by Renny Svernofsky and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.